to see or in Galatians chapter 5. If you would turn there in your Bibles, I'd appreciate that. Galatians chapter 5. Congratulations, you made it to church, right? Uh, maybe not on time, that you thought it was at least. It, uh, it is tough getting up for daylight savings when it's uh, going into daylight savings mode, right? Um, I, saw, I saw a little meme this morning, uh, it was a, which is a picture, kind of funny, right? If you didn't know what that is. It, uh, it had some coffee cups on it. Had a small, like a you know, six ounce or an eight ounce, and then it had the twelve ounce, and then sixteen ounce. Then it said the daylight savings cup, right? <laughs> it's like this big. I tell you, that sound sounded good this morning. Uh, maybe you're uh, you're coffeeed out by now, but uh, it is it is a new day, right? It should be eleven o'clock, and it's twelve, but that's okay. We're here, we're ready to go, and it'll be lighter later tonight. Okay, Galatians chapter five. We're continuing in our in our series in Galatians that uh, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That he is our everything, and there's nothing that needs to be added to him. Paul, uh, in the in the intro to Galatians and, and working up through chapter four so far, uh, we've been working through this text, and Paul has has been arguing for the purity of the gospel. That is the good news of salvation. That it is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. That nothing else needs to be added or done in order to have salvation. It is all about Jesus. And last week, Alistair uh, preached, and he covered the end of chapter four. And he explained how Paul had showed the Galatians and the Judaizers, because right, there's two different audiences here at least that, that are reading this letter. When Paul sends this letter out, the, the Galatian churches are going to have it, the, the believers are going to have it, they're going to read it, but also the ones that are teaching them the false doctrine are probably going to be able to read this, and then others who might want to read it. So there are two audiences at least, and we're, we're talking about how, how Paul uh, explained and showed the Galatians and the Judaizers, the false teachers, the futility of their ways using the Old Testament in his favor. So, so those who would want to take the Old Testament and take the law and say, hey, this is supreme. This is where we get all these rites and rituals and regulations and rules, and you got to follow these. Those who would want to embrace that, Paul took the same thing they were using. He said, okay, let's, let's compare. Let's check it out. Let's make sure we're on the same page. And he used it to his advantage uh, and showed them the futility of their ways, right? And he was specifically talking about Sarah and Hagar, who both had sons by Abraham. And remember, Abraham was the one who received the original promise of God. And, and by the way, the promise of God did not start with Abraham. It started in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, God said, you know what? I will provide a way. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent. Amen? There will be a way. The promise will come, and it will be found in Christ. He didn't say the seed of the woman plus all the rules and regulations and the laws. He said the seed of the woman will take care of this. The seed will be the promise. So we have these two women, Hagar and Sarah, who both had sons by Abraham who received the promise. And one of them was born from the flesh or the impulses of the flesh. And one was born divinely through the promise. Uh, the promise was given, said, Abraham, well, you're going you're to have a son. I'm going I'm to give you a son. And, and through that son, you are going to be blessed. And um, the nations will be, you won't be able to count them. Be so, so many that will be part of your children, your family, your inheritance. Right, and he was talking about us, the lineage down the line that would be us, you and I, who would believe in the promise. Abraham and Sarah got a little antsy and said, well, I don't know, we're not going to live by faith, we're going to live by works. So, and Sarah was, was like, I'm past this, I can't have kids, why don't you use our slave, Hagar, and you can, we'll get a son through her. And, and there was a point where Abraham said, hey, can't we use Isaac, or I'm sorry, Ishmael, can't we just use Ishmael? We, I've got him, he's a son, he's, he's out of my lineage. And God said, no, that's not the way this works. The promise doesn't work according to the flesh, according to the rules, according to the law. The promise works according to the grace of God. 
And God continued to be faithful, and Sarah and Abraham exhibited faith in him, and they produced a son. God produced a son in them, Isaac, not born of the flesh or flesh desire, but born of divine nature, born according to the promise. So that through the promise and in the promise, we have grace through faith in Christ alone, and that that is far superior because it frees us from the slavery of being bound to the law and its regulations. So that's where we left off last week. And what we've seen in the, in the book of Galatians, we've seen that Paul has used a very personal approach in the first part of Galatians, in, in uh, the first, first two chapters. He was very personal and very passionate about his apostleship. He's like, hey guys, remember who I am? Hello, I, I'm here, I'm Paul. I was with you, here's who I am, here's, here's why what I'm saying is right in the gospel. He said, you remember me, you remember, and now you're believing these Judaizers. By the way, I was one of the strictest Jews there was, so I know what's going on here. And I've had this transformation that, uh, that my faith now is based on the grace of God and in Christ alone. And nothing can change that. He is my everything, and I can't add anything to that. He had a really profound personal experience, didn't he? A, per- a personal relationship with Jesus. Not just one based on the law and works. So the first two chapters, he said, here's the personal experience. Here's who I am. Here's what I've experienced. Here's why grace is sufficient. Here's why it's the only thing that matters. And then in, in chapters 3 and 4, he sets up this doctrine. He wants us to understand the doctrine of grace and how, how the doctrine of works can never live up to the doctrine of grace, how the law can never produce what only grace can produce, that we can never earn our way or do enough to live consistently under the law. And no rules or regulations, no circumcision or festival could ever do for you or for me what Christ has already done. Amen? That's what Paul presents in chapters 3 and 4. He's, he's defending this doctrine of grace. And now we're moving into chapters 5 and 6, the last two chapters of the book. And we move into more, more of a practical aspect of living by the doctrine of grace. That we actually live it out. And I hope this is challenging and encouraging to you. I hope that we can see that it's practical and we can see that we can live this out as well. That Jesus is calling us to not only be saved by grace, but to live by grace. It's practical. The emphasis is that the, that right doctrine, if embraced from a heart, longing for Jesus should result in right living. Right doctrine should result in right living. The presentation here is that a life of genuine faith is more than belief, more than just belief in divine truth. It's more than just saying Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's a life that's consistently lived out by that truth, that he is my everything. See, we're switching gears in our theme a little bit. I want you to catch this. Our, Our theme so far has been that Jesus plus nothing is everything, and that is doctrine, that is truth. But how it's personal for you and I is this, that Jesus plus nothing I can bring, makes him my everything. That he is, without a doubt, at the core of who we are, our everything. And it's personal now. He gets personal on this level. And we must understand that as we desire to live by faith, and we desire to produce a fruit that's consistent with his grace, doing so apart from the power of his Holy Spirit is just as futile as attempting to earn his grace by works. It's very similar, in fact. The Christian life has never simply been about outward performance, that I can accomplish something because I can accomplish nothing. He is divine and we are the branches apart from him. 
we can do nothing. It's always been about an inner transformation and a growth that Jesus wants to, to, to see well up in us. He wants to see us transformed and perfected by Christ alone and in His image. Only a life lived in freedom. See, this, this can get tricky here. We think that now, okay, now, now we, we said this, don't do by, it's not by works. We, don't, we aren't saved by works. You can't do this. You can't do that. Don't, don't try to earn it. Don't try to do that. And then we get to chapter 5, and it's like, live this way. It's like, oh, we just, what do we do, you know? And, and, and I want you to understand that there, there are standards. And we talked about that a little bit in the previous weeks, so and next week we're really going to get into it, right? But there are standards to live by. There, there's a way that is right and pleasing to the Lord. But it must come, this, 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 this transition between chapter 4 and chapter 5 is all about your heart. It's all about right here, what's going on right here. Jesus is grabbing and longing to call it and change it and make it a heart of flesh and a heart that longs for Him. A heart that is ultimately supremely satisfied in Him. And I don't have to bring a single thing with me. I don't have to come to Jesus saying, God, I've got this and I'll have you and it's going to be great because now we're adding something to Jesus. He says, just be satisfied in me. I'll be more than enough. And as you are satisfied in me, you're going to grow and you're going to become more and more like Jesus. And that's what it means to live for Jesus. It's to become more and more like Jesus. And certainly we could list those things off on a piece of paper. But it's not about the list. It's about the heart. Amen? So I need you to get that. I need to get that. We need to embrace this, that it's about the heart. Because we'll start seeing some things. That looks, that looks a little dogmatic, Brandon. It's how Jesus wants us to live from the heart. You know, I talked about it a few weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago. That one of the, the greatest things that, one of the greatest schemes that Satan does, right? He schemes to make us moral. It's like, if I can just get them to behave, to appear proper, to look like they've, they've done everything they can to have it all together. And if they would just rest in their own ability to do that, he would have us. Scripture says that Satan is a servant and his demons are servants of righteousness. He's not going to come and say, not always come and say, hey, go, go live this debauched lifestyle. If he can just paralyze you in morality, not lived out from the heart, he's won. And that is not what chapter 5 and 6 is about. Chapter 5 and 6 is about you and I from the heart living in a way that honors and pleases God that forms us and molds us more into the image of the Son so that people would see us and not see us anymore. That they would see Jesus, powerful, freeing Jesus. And only a life lived in freedom, not in bondage or in by the law, in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit will be able to show off the power of God to save us by grace through faith and in Christ alone. That's how we show it off. <clears throat> and this is, this is a race. You know, there's... There's a goal. There's a prize. We want to run like we're running after the prize. We just got done watching the Olympics and how fun that was. And you know, speed skating will be the, the race illustration because there was no, no track and field, right? It was winter Olympics, not summer. But, but you don't race just leisurely. You race with nothing, nothing hindering you, nothing holding you back, with all you have, not being distracted. And we're going to go into that today and how that life looks. I want to just read a text out of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, if you want to turn there, just flip there real quick with me in, the, in your Bible. I'd appreciate that. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
It says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, talking about all of chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a, endured a cross and despising the shame he, and sat down at the right hand of God's throne. See, God, God did everything for us so that, that the author and perfecter, God, the source, could transform us as we keep our eyes focused on him. There's a race to be run. And, and what I want us to understand as you flip back to Galatians 5, what I want us to get today is this, that there, there is a moment in our life where, where, where it all wells up inside of us in our heart and we understand how deeply sinful we are and how deeply separated from God we are. And we understand how, how, how rich we can be in Christ spiritually. And we believe the gospel and we let what he has done on the cross and through the resur resurrection be the power and imputed righteousness that we need. That he would take his robe and clothe us so we're no longer us, we're now looking like Jesus. That he forgives us. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us, and although they were like scarlet, our sins are now white as snow. That's, that's the power of salvation by grace through faith and in Christ alone. But once we are saved, God doesn't want to just leave us where we are. He wants to transform us and conform us into the image of the Son. So as, as Paul talks to these brothers, right? They're brothers and sisters at Galatia, in, in the region of Galatia. As he talks to them as, as believers, he says, listen, we're, we're running a race here. Get, get your eyes and mind focused on the race. And run the race well. So yes, you're saved. And, and that's the illustration too. You think about the Olympics. If you're from Canada, you're from Canada. You're a citizen of Canada, and you, you run for that country. A citizen of somewhere else can't run for your country. Jesus didn't put you in the race unless you're a citizen. You're his. He saved you, and he's, he's given you his righteousness. And now he says, get on the track. Let's go. Run as hard as you can, as fast as you can. Keep your eyes on me for my glory, that people would see me. So you and I have this race to run, and, and what happens in life is, is this process of sanctification. This is a big word, right? It's a church word, sanctification. See, there's justification. That's what I just talked about, that God has imputed his righteousness to us. He's given us forgiveness. He's not counting our trespasses against us anymore. He has pardoned us and forgiven us. We are justified. And when we stand before God, he doesn't see us or our sin. He sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness and forgiven of everything, amen? We are justified. It's, I stand before God, and it's just as if I had never sinned. But we are not sanctified yet. Now, see, that's a growth. That's the next phase of our Christian life. God wants to sanctify us, to, to mold us and make us more and more like Jesus. That people would see us and see our lives and see our humility and see the grace upon grace that we are receiving and living by and standing on, and that we would be the image of Christ to a world that needs him. He wants to sanctify us, to help us grow in our spiritual walk. So although we were justified and saved by grace, we now are sanctified as we live by grace. And that's what chapters 5 and 6 will be talking about. How, how does that growth happen? What does that growth look like? And today, we're going to be looking at this freedom that we have. This freedom that we have, the life of freedom we have in Christ about growing from the one who is the source. 
to be sanctified, to be mature, to be complete and more like Jesus. You ready for that? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time to come together and to read your word. God, I pray as we do that you would challenge us and change us. God, you would, you would convict us of our sin and our, our deep need for you. God, that a longing of our heart would be for you, that you are our everything and would be our everything. Guide us into truth. God, conform us into the image and pattern of the Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at some observations about the life of freedom. Uh, first, we're going to read our text in Galatians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Christ has liberated us into freedom. Therefore, stand firm and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, tell you, if you get circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For by the Spirit, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness from faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who called you. A little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. In the Lord, I have confidence in you that you will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is, who is troubling you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. For if you are called to freedom, brothers, only don't, or for you are called to freedom, brothers, and only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. All right, so let's look at this, this freedom that we have in Christ, this life of freedom. And I want to make some observations that we can see in this text as well. First one is this. Freedom in Christ is the firm foundation. Freedom in Christ is the firm foundation. It's the only sure, sure thing, right? It's the only sure footing we can have is a freedom in Christ alone, apart from anything else that we could ever accomplish. Look at verse 1. Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Through the finished work of Christ on the cross and through his resurrection, God has offered us redemption. That is, he has paid for us. He has, he has paid and bought us back. And he's given us freedom from the chains that bound us in our weak and lost and shameful heart. We were bound in that. We were bound in the, as, as prisoners. We couldn't help but do anything against God. We, we, that's all we focused on. And in Christ alone now, we can stand firm in our hearts. Listen, in Christ alone, we can stand firm in our hearts and rest and rejoice in what He alone has accomplished. Amen? Our rest, our security, our assurance, our stability is in Christ and what He has accomplished. He has pulled us out of this pit of darkness and deep despair because of our sin. And, and it's, it's that case that our sin must look so desperately wicked so we can enjoy Christ all the more. 
See, we need, we need to understand that it wasn't something I did. It wasn't something that I got together and I figured out and, and now I can boast about. It's, we can boast in nothing but Christ crucified, that he is the only thing that we can boast in. He is what accomplished everything. Thomas Watson had a quote that says this, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And we have to understand that our sin is bitter. And what we were holding on to, what we were living in, the way we were distance, we had distanced ourselves from God was absolutely destructive and bitter and, and despairing. And that is what gives us the reality that Christ is so sweet. Amen? That in Him I have everything. He is my everything. And in my deepest need should grow my deepest affection for Christ. You see, that, that's what the doctrine of grace does. It, it grows a deep affection in us for Christ. It does not grow in us a legalistic tone, does it? Paul would totally refute that. Say, don't do that. He says, embrace Christ and, and let him take care of the deepest sin in your heart, and then it will grow the deepest affection for him as everything. That's what prompts us to live this Christian life. That's what prompts us to be living by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what prompts us to obey Him. And that's what prompts us to sacrifice everything and consider everything rubbish except for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what's all surpassing. This affection for Him cannot be duplicated. It cannot be usurped because He has made Himself my everything. There's nothing that can, can wipe that out. There's nothing that can, can take away his position as first and preeminent and all-sufficient. And it is in that satisfaction and adoration of Christ in us that that moves us to humbly and joyfully and freely seek and desire to honor and glorify him in all that I do. And there is no legalism there. There is no, nothing bound to morality. We are bound in Christ, united in Christ. And it's in Him I live and move, and in Him I have my being. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 says this. It says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom is what we're talking about. Freedom is what we take our stand on. It is the firm foundation. In verse 18, it says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. God's Spirit is revealing Himself to us and giving us freedom. And as we look to Him and look at Him and face to face in His grace, He begins to transform us into the image of the Son. And that's what it's about. And the sweeter our affections are for Christ, the more stable the foundation of His grace becomes. When Christ is all satisfying, nothing else can be. Amen? And an adoring heart does not lead to a sinful life, but a holy life. Number two, the second observation. As our grip slips, the benefit of grace slips. Let's look at this in verses 2 through 4. It says, Take note, I, Paul, tell you that if you get circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit at all to you. Again, I, I testify to every man who gets circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Some pretty, pretty tough words here that Paul uh, says both to the Judaizers and to the Galatians. And 
I want us to understand that, that again, there's two audiences that, that are reading. There's two audiences that are hearing, and, and I think these, this statement can apply to both of those audiences. One is to the Judaizers, right? These Judaizers want us to believe and want the Galatians to believe that we're missing something, that, that we would be more spiritual if we practice the law and its demands. If we would embrace that plus Jesus, we'd have everything and really would have nothing. But we know that, right? We know that nothing in the law, nothing can add to Jesus because nothing can be added to everything to make it of any value. And Paul's warning here is to both groups of people. I think first to the Judaizers. He says, listen, you, you don't have a clue. Your, your grip is on something, your, whole, your pride. You're holding on to your pride, right? See, this is all about our grip. And whether you're, you're an unbeliever at this point, you don't really haven't really believed on the gospel and Jesus Christ for salvation, or whether you have, it's all about what we want to hold on to, isn't it? For the Judaizers, for the false teachers, they wanted to hold on to pride. They wanted to hold on to ego. They wanted to hold on to authority. They wanted to hold on to regulations. And they wanted to earn their own keep. So in order to hold on to that, they could not set it down and embrace grace. They wanted to hold on to it. And Paul reiterates again. He says, I, Paul, tell you, if you get circumcised, if you pursue the law, Christ will be of no benefit to you. In verse 3, he says, again, if any man gets circumcised, he's obligated now to keep the entire law. And this is one of those things we'll talk about in a few minutes as well. The, the, the Judaizers and false teachers, the Pharisees even, right, they liked to pick and choose what they followed. They, they went to the law like a hometown buffet. Like, well, I'll take some of this and some of that and some of that and some of that and some of that. And as long as I look like I've eaten well, right, I'll, I'll look the part, I'll be okay. Paul says, listen, if you, whatever you take, you need to take it all. Because you're now under the entire law and you need to follow the entire law. And see, that, that's how the law is not invalidated with the promise, right? The law cooperates with the promise by telling us how insufficient we are to keep it. And points us to the promise of God that we can have life only in Christ because we can't have life by the law because we can't keep the law. But Paul is saying, if you're going to do this, you've got to keep the entire law. And he says, you who are trying to be justified. We talked about this word justified. That's our initial conversion. That's when we trusted Christ as Savior. That's when we believed the gospel. That's when he forgave us and made us white as snow and imputed his righteousness on us. And, and what they're seeking is salvation or justification apart from Christ and in works. And he goes on again. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law, you're alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. You've lost your grip. You, there's no way you can grab it because you're grabbing onto something else. He's basically saying you're, you're damned. You, you can't get there. And then he talks, I think this implies also to, to you and I, to brothers and sisters. He's writing this letter to them. And there's certainly not a tone here, and I want to make sure you understand that, that he's telling them, you're not saved, you've lost your salvation, you're going to lose it ever. That's not, God's righteousness is not something we can take off. When he justifies, he justifies completely and seals us by the promised Holy Spirit. It's done, it's finished. When we stand before God, we're justified. But from that moment on, there's a life lived of, of now spiritual growth in righteousness. That we want to look more and more like Jesus. And, and what's going to thwart that is our grip. We have a grip on grace, and, and it's like oil and water. You know, it's, it's, it's nice when it's shaken up in a nice vinaigrette. But when it sits there for a while, what does it do? It separates. It just can't mix. I can't, I can't take that, that life lived by grace and say, I want to live by grace and hold on to it. And then, oh, I want the world too. It won't 
work for us. To the unsaved, he's saying that there can be no gain of eternal value or saving benefit apart from Jesus Christ. To the saved, to the brothers, he calls the Galatians brothers and sisters. He says we. He's including them in in the elect, in in the saints, in the Christians, the Christ followers. To, To them, he's saying that their bewitched behavior is is losing grip and losing sight, and and it's inconsistent with grace and could be no benefit for their personal spiritual growth. You're not going to be able to live by grace if you go that direction. Where the Judaizers aren't even going to be able to embrace grace because they're holding on to legalism. For those who are saved, yeah, we're justified. We've embraced grace. But in order to live by grace takes letting go of that still and not focusing on the world and what it offers because Christ is our everything. We grab on to Him. When we try to add things to Jesus or we focus on prideful distractions, our grip slips. And the benefit of God's grace to assure us and to assist us in our spiritual growth then becomes insufficient because oil and water just don't mix. Don't mix. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Keep your finger in Galatians. Second Peter, James, right? First Peter, Second Peter, chapter three, verse seventeen and eighteen. Verse three, or chapter three, verse seventeen and eighteen. Uh, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the air of the immoral and fall from your own stability. See, there's that stability, that Christ is our stability, right? We don't want to fall from that stability. We want it to be everything still for us. We don't want to fall from stability. Going on, it says, but grow, grow, spiritual growth, sanctification in the grace of and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. See, there's this, this, this process, this sanctification that we're going to grow in, and we have to be on guard and watchful that our pride doesn't creep in and ruin our day. We want to be found satisfied in Christ alone. We are saved by grace, and now we must hold on to His grace and live by that grace. I want to live by grace. Number three, our heart should long for the value of hoping in Christ. Our heart should long for the value of hoping in Christ. Let's look at verses five and six. For by the Spirit, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness from faith. So we're talking about the Spirit. It gives some power to wait. There's some power in presence in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That, that we, we can be patient and look for God coming to, to our rescue or to help us. Verses 5, uh, go on, it says, uh, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters, this might be important, right? What matters is faith working through love. See, Paul, Paul is showing us throughout this whole letter this huge contrast. Uh, there's a contrast between those who are turning or entrusting in, in works to save and fulfill and those who have a continual trust and hope in Jesus Christ. 
And there's a difference there. The marks of the one trusting in themselves are fear and bondage and despair and inadequacy. And the marks of the one who trusts in Christ alone are seen here and shown here in this verse as faith, as hope in, in, of righteousness, and faith demonstrated in love. So the question you and I have to ask ourselves is, what do people see when they look at my life? What do people see when they look at your life? Is it a life full of deep faith, hoping and longing for Christ to grow you and to change you and to challenge you and to make you look more and more like Him? Is it a life lived in submission to God, serving others in love? It's interesting that in this passage, it brings up faith. By the power of the Spirit, faith. It brings up hope, and it brings up love. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. You see, that's, that's again this transformation from the heart. From legalism, from works, from even your own morality, to a place that God grabs onto you and you grab onto him and out of love you and I respond so what motivates you we're in this race what motivates you to run the race is it a political agenda is it earning favor with God is it holding on maybe to a certain sin like as long as I can do this see here's the deal. if it's not from the heart a hope in Christ then it is nothing and it won't matter for anything. And it, it won't matter for enduring the race. We should long for the everything that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what should motivate us. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Our heart should long for the value of hoping in Christ. That's who we are, a hopeful people, hopeful in Christ. And that brings joy and affection to our hearts for Jesus. Number four, prideful distraction throws us off the course. Prideful distraction throws us off the course. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who called you. A little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. In the Lord, I have confidence in you that you will not accept any other view. But whoever it is troubling you will, will pay the penalty. Now, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. Pretty fun verse, isn't it? This is one when we started Galatians. <laughs> Like, ah, man, we got to talk about this stuff. And there's a lot more in here that's deeper than this. This is just a, an interesting comment he makes. And I thought, well, maybe I'll ask Hoyt to preach that one. <laughs> he, could, he could preach that week, or, or Alistair. He would try to get Chase, and he, no, no, he didn't do it either. But I don't mind preaching this week. We, we get distracted. We're running this race, and, and there's things that throw us off the course. And, and one of Paul's biggest pet peeves are, are false teachers that show up, that rise up, that are allowed in, that aren't rebuked. False teachers who come in and try to sway us and pull us from the race we're running. And what we're doing is we're running with our eyes focused on Jesus and someone's tapping us on the shoulder. And, and during the Olympics, it was kind of neat because there were lots of videos that they, they kind of produced and showed you of, of Olympic fails, right? 
there'd be a runner running track and field, and they'd be sprinting down the track as fast as they could, and they have got a substantial lead, right? And they look over their shoulder, they're running down the track, and they're like, oh, there's no one there, and they kind of start jogging a little bit, yeah, and they're kind of dancing, and they didn't see the guy over here, and whizzed right by him. You see, that's like us. We get kind of cocky, don't we? We get kind of confident. We're running this race. We're okay. We're, we're strong. We, we've, got it. we've got it under control. We've, we've been walking with Jesus for a while. We can take care of this. I can take my eyes off the prize for a minute. Try doing that driving down the freeway. Try taking your eyes off the road for a minute and see what happens. Unless you own a Tesla, I guess. You're going to crash. You see, when we run this race, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus if we aren't continually treasuring Christ and keeping our eyes on Him, we'll become too comfortable and distracted. We'll trip, we'll fall, we'll, we'll go down the wrong trail. We'll end up where we never thought we would be, and it was because of our own selfish desires and our own ego. Pride creeps in, and pride entangles us. And we're easily distracted. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 3. Paul's letters are very similar, and I encourage you to, to kind of cross-reference over and read some other letters, epistles to churches. A lot of similar language in these. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, looking at verses 21, or I'm sorry, 12 through 21. Not that I have already reached the goal, or am I already fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it, because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. So Paul, as admitting, Paul, right? The Apostle Paul says, I haven't arrived. I haven't got there yet. I'm not trying to tell you that, that I've reached the goal or that I'm fully mature. So what Paul's saying is, I'm trying to grow too. I'm trying to mature too. I'm going through this process of sanctification too. But here's what that looks like. He goes in verse, verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind me and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, all who are mature should think this way. If you want to be mature, if you're growing, this is what you should think. Uh, and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you also. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have, have attained. So we're all running and we're at different spots on the track. Right? Some of you have been running for years and years and years. Some of you have been running for months. Right? But we're still running, and our, our prize is what Jesus wants. And, and, and our eyeball should be on Jesus. Verse 17, Join in imitating, imitating me, brothers, and observe, uh, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. Our eyes are fixed on those kind of examples. For I have often told you, and now I say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject, subject everything to Himself. He's like, hey, there's going to be things that want to throw you off course. And, and Paul, he says, I'm in tears thinking that there are enemies on the, uh, to, uh, to the cross that are trying to run alongside of you. And it may appear they're in the same race, but they're not citizens. And, and they're trying to, to tell you to come over here, come over to my track, come run this race, come run this course. Don't have anything to do with it. 
Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let Him transform us into the likeness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a message of truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that comes from God that seems foolish to some people. The message that, that you and I have believed in Jesus Christ seems foolish to people. Corinthians tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power for us who are being saved. It is powerful for us. And for those who are embracing this foolish message, this message, it will, it will drive them to do foolish things under the banner of self-righteousness. You know, Paul expressed he's not a big fan of false teachers. And, and he made that comment in verse, verse 12, right? Go back to Galatians, verse 12. I wish that those disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. I think there's, there's, two, there's two thoughts I have on this, two, two different directions this could go, two different reasons he said this. One is he's so sick and tired of false teachers. He knows they're Satan's puppets, and, and he doesn't want them to propagate any more false teaching, so he wishes they would get castrated and not be able to breed. Let's, let's not let you have kids because they're going to be teaching the same things you will. See, you and I, I, I count it a privilege that I have two little missionaries, two little letters to the future that God has given me. I will be long dead and gone, and my kids, by the, by the power of God, will be proclaiming Jesus Christ. That's what I want. I'm sure that's what my grandma wanted. I'm sure that's what my dad wants, and that's what I want. And Paul said, I don't want you to teach your kids to t- teach the same things you're teaching. That, that could be one thing, that could be one reason he said that. I wish they just wouldn't breed. I wish they wouldn't have any more kids and teach this stuff and continue this on. Let's stop this now. But I think there's a more probable reason he's saying this. He's mad and, and he's tired of their, their half-hearted hypocrisy. And Jesus said this too. He's like, you like to fancy yourself up. You're like a whitewashed tomb. Nothing on the inside is good. Everything on the outside looks shiny, but it doesn't matter. You're bad. You're half-hearted. And I said earlier that, that they were like going to the smorgasbord, to the hometown buffet, right? These guys, the Judaizers, like to pick and choose half-heartedly what they wanted to obey. They weren't, they weren't willing to obey all of the law. And Paul was upset by that. He says, if you're going to teach this, then show it. And there were these sects and these religious sects around them, these, these cults that actually proved their allegiance to their deity through self-mutilation that they wouldn't just get circumcised, they would castrate themselves to show how devout they were a follower of their deity. And Paul is so sick and tired of half-hearted legalists. He says, I just wish you would prove, prove how honorable you are, prove how noble you are, prove how much you can earn it, and go all the way. I think that's more likely. He's so, he wanted to, and, and it really, if you're a Judaizer and you're reading that, you've got a question, why, why haven't I? Why haven't I done more? Why haven't I done all the law? He's wanting to expose their hypocrisy. He's tired of it. So he throws a pretty severe severe jab at them. They're trusting in their own ability. They're trusting in part of the law, and they're trying to teach others the same thing, and it's, it's wrong. It's an error. I think we can simply surmise from Paul's statements that we need to keep our eyes fixed on the atoning work of Christ alone. 
And we need to let his Holy Spirit be the fuel that helps us run the race. That our affection would be for him. Our desire would be that he would be our everything. Our hope and our righteousness would be found in him and we would resist anything or anyone that points us somewhere other than Christ alone. Amen? Finally, number five. Real freedom motivates us to freely love and freely serve. Real freedom motivates us to freely love and freely serve. Let's look at verses 13 through 15. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. You should love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. That's, that last verse is talking about the pride that it seeps in. So oh, I'll let pride get in there. I'll, we'll start biting and devouring, dividing. We'll start letting, letting Satan win those battles instead of letting God win those battles and, and letting our hearts be humbled by God. This is about the condition of the heart. I want us to go back to what I first said when we started this. Moving from chapter 4 to chapter 5 is, is how we should live from our heart. A heart that is, is embracing and affectionate towards Jesus Christ because He is my everything. It's how will I live now because He is my everything. It has to come down to the heart. And you and I then have to, all the time, constantly, continually assess our heart don't we? What's in my heart? What is my motive? What, what am I doing that's, that's not pleasing to the Lord? What am I doing that could be more pleasing to the Lord? Our calling is to be free, but it's not a freedom to sin. It's a calling and a freedom from sin. It's a freedom that we would live by grace and let, let Jesus and the power of His Holy Spirit be, be what empowers us to live in a holy, pleasing way to God. And listen, God's grace in, in that heartfelt setting, in that place where my heart longs for that, His grace is sufficient for every demand that you'll face in life. For everything He'll ask you to do, His grace is sufficient. We're saved by His grace. We serve by grace. We live by faith, by grace. Grace enables us to endure suffering. It's grace that strengthens us. And we know that we, because of Jesus, may confidently approach the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Amen? It's by grace that we are saved. It's by grace now that we live to honor and love and obey God. And it is sufficient. His grace is sufficient because the debt that we owed God has been paid. Romans tells us that only one debt remains. Romans 13.8 says, Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Listen, because Jesus first loved us, I owe it to God to love you. Because Jesus first loved us, you owe it to God to love me. From the heart, real, selfless, compassionate Love. Because of what Jesus has done, we are no longer bound by a law. We're no longer bound by sin. But we are enabled by faith and the power and the presence of His Holy Spirit to love and serve others.
and love and serve God. That's what he calls us to do. And I want you for a minute, just, just take a minute to awkwardly right now look around. I want you to look at who is here. Just look around. Turn around, look behind you, look beside you. I get to look at you every, every week. I see all of you. But look around. And, and here's what I want you to understand. We need to be this Galatians 5 and 6 church. This Galatians 5 and 6 Christian. That when we walk through those doors, when we, when we come to sit, when we come to listen and hear and be fed and grow, we also come here to look at our neighbor, the person sitting next to us, and, and with all of our heart and all that we long for, say, I would do anything to serve and love them. I would give anything I could to serve and love you. And I don't know about you, but I want to be better and better at that. Because that's what Jesus is calling us to from the heart to serve and love God and serve and love our neighbor. And Ryan said it earlier, we are good at that, but we can be better, right? And in your bulletin, that little green sheet, it's a Love Does project, right? It's, we're coming up, and we've been doing that for a year, off and on, different Love Does opportunities, because love is practical, and love is lived out, and our, our life of grace is lived out by grace in Jesus Christ. And that board is, is prayerful consideration of how we can serve and love and meet the needs in our community, telling them about Jesus Christ through our love for them. And last year, we had a, we had a great, great response, and we showed up and we served and loved and helped, and I, and I hope and pray for that this time as well. This, this will be another one of those years where we're bigger and better and more, and just we want to make sure people know and see Jesus because of how we love from the heart, not because of how we obey from a list or rules, but how we love genuinely from the heart. There are all kinds of opportunities, please, as we're done, as part of our response time. When we say amen, walk out there in response to God, saying, God, where would you have me serve? Sir, we've tried to do it where you could serve multiple times, multiple places, because they don't overlap a lot. Maybe, maybe it, what, what means love to your neighbor would be maybe taking a day off of work. I, I, I'm not telling you to do that, but maybe that is. For some people, it may be that. It may be sacrificing another gathering you normally do on Saturday. But, but running this race with our eyes focused on Jesus for the cause of Christ, for the glory of God, is so worth it because He is everything. Amen? So it's no longer Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus plus nothing is my everything. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Father, you are our hope, and our hope is in you and in your righteousness and in how you are going to transform us and make us, make us righteous in this life. Father, we haven't reached perfection. We haven't reached a goal of, of knowing you more and, and looking like you more, but God, we want to keep our eyes focused on you from the heart because our sin was bitter and we know you are so sweet. God, raise our affection for you. May we, may we be satisfied only in Christ and may nothing else do. We treasure you and we want to treasure not only you, we want to treasure each other and those whom you're calling to yourself. We love you. We praise you for what you're doing in us. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.